In our wee country, we sometimes talk about no-go areas. We talk about places that we would avoid at any cost. And you probably know that I come from a no-go area, that I come from a place that many people would avoid, many people will have never been to, I would never consider going to, because its reputation puts people off. So that when I was at Queen's, I had a couple of friends, and they wouldn't dare come to where I lived, even when I asked them to. The thing is, they were from Lurgan, and well, you know, the words pot, kettle kind of spring to mind, but anyway, they, they just wouldn't come to where I live. And sometimes it's as if there are no-go areas in the Bible as well. Because while we talk a lot about believing in the authority of Scripture, while we use big grand phrases like the whole counsel of God, that every part of it is important, we know that we can shy away from particular books and passages along the way. And I would suggest that Revelation is one of them. Even this week, I was chatting to someone, and they were saying to me, Revelation, what's that all about? I'm trying to work my way through that in my Bible reading notes, and I'm really struggling with what that book is all about. And if you read Revelation, you encounter monsters and dragons and angels and demons that might feel more like a Harry Potter book or the, the Lord of the Rings or something like that. And then along the way, you've probably heard all kinds of interpretations about this book. People telling you what exact parts of it mean, whether that's to do with Israel and the Palestinians or to do with the, the European Union and the Vatican or more lately to do with Ukraine and Russia. But if we go back to North Belfast for just a second, you see, the thing about my part of the world and I will speak up for it today, is that there are parts of it that are actually really lovely and interesting. And if you make the effort to go, there are lots of places to discover. So these Sundays, as we gather together to worship as a church family, we are venturing into what some people would regard as being a no-go area. We're looking together at part of the book of Revelation. We're taking a look at some of these letters that are written within a letter, seven letters that are addressed to congregations in a place called Asia Minor. And as we come to this book, we acknowledge that there is so much confusion about the book of Revelation. What is it really all about? Well, you'll remember that advert for Ron Seale and the slogan, it does exactly what it says on the tin. When it comes to the book of Revelation, it does exactly what it says in the title. If you look back right at the beginning of this book in your Bibles at Revelation 1 verse 1, there we're introduced to this book, and the introduction is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, 
who testifies to everything he saw. That is the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So, we can say that this is a message that is both from and about the Lord Jesus Christ. That, in essence, is what Revelation is all about. And it comes to these churches via one of the disciples of Jesus, John. We know a lot about John. He is the apostle who spent so much time with Jesus. He's the writer of the fourth gospel. He writes three of the letters that we have in the New Testament as well. And the letters go to congregations in a Roman province called Asia. Now, that's not the vast continent that we know of in the world today. Rather, it was a a region of the Roman Empire in around modern-day Turkey. And the important thing is what these people were going to be reminded of by the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look back again at chapter 1 and the third verse, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take it to heart, because the time is near. And it's those last words there, the time is near. It helps us to understand when this book was written. This was a book that was all about the last days or the end times. And the people who received this book at first, they were living in the last days, the end times, just as we are living in the last days, the end times, because that period of time is the period between the first coming of Jesus, what we read about in the Gospels, and then His second coming, the return that He has promised. So, when we sometimes ask one another, do you think we're living in the last days? Do you think we're living in the end times? The answer is yes, we are. Just as these people who first received this letter were as well. And what that means for us is that all that we are reading here is bang up to date. Because while Jesus was addressing these letters to seven specific congregations at that time, we're actually getting to hear what Christ thinks of the church. That this tells us what Jesus wants His church to be like in all places and at all times, including here in Connor right now. So, with that in mind, let's look at this letter that we read together today in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8. And I don't know when you last received encouragement or even when you encouraged someone else, but we like to be encouraged in our life and we need to be encouraged. When you're getting it tough, when you're going through difficult days, when you're maybe struggling a lot at work, it's great when someone comes up to you and says, you're doing a good job, keep going, well done. We're behind you, we're supporting you. And the thing is, the church in Smyrna really, really needed to be encouraged as they sought to be a light in the darkness in the part of the world where God had placed them. And they were to get great encouragement. It was encouragement that came from a really special source. It was encouragement that came from the Lord Jesus Himself. 
And last week, we looked together at the first of these letters to a place called Ephesus, and it was a pretty mixed bag, wasn't it? Because Ephesus was a church that seemed to be doing the right things. It was standing up against false teaching. They endured much, and yet this was the church that had lost its passion for Christ, the most important thing that it needed to have. But when it comes to Smyrna, there was no criticism from Jesus. There was just encouragement, and they really needed this encouragement. Smyrna is what is known today as Izmir, the the third largest city in Turkey. Maybe you've been there when you've been on your holidays. And what we need to understand about Smyrna is that Smyrna was the center in that region for worship of the emperor. In the Roman Empire, more and more people were beginning to worship the emperor as if he was a god. In fact, in Smyrna, they had won a competition, a bit like an Olympic bid, to build a big temple that would worship the emperor Tiberius. And more and more people in the city were worshiping the emperor, and more and more of these Christians were under pressure to do the same. But of course, for them, they said, no, we only worship Jesus. We know that He is the Lord, that He alone is worthy of the worship. And the more they said that, the more they were accused of not being patriotic, of not being loyal to Rome. And so the persecution started. And there was a second source of persecution as well, from the Jewish community living in Smyrna, because they wanted to to be disassociated with the Christians. They put as much distance between themselves and the followers of Jesus as they could, and the way in which they did that was by persecuting them, making their life really difficult. This church was getting it really tough, and Christ reminds them of three important things to encourage them. He reminds them of who they worship and follow, that is Jesus, of who they are, and then of what they will gain. Let's look at those things really quickly this morning. First of all, they're reminded of who they worship and follow. Jesus says about Himself in verse 8, these are the words of Him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. Sometimes when we are going through tough times, we are tempted to doubt, and we think to ourselves, is this worth all of the hassle that I'm getting? Am I suffering for nothing, or am I suffering for the truth? And imagine what it was like for the Christians here in Smyrna who were getting it so tough so that they started to question, well, what if Jesus is just an ordinary man like us? What if He's not actually Lord? What if we have got it all wrong? Who exactly is it that we are suffering for? And so, Jesus, the Lord of the church, is quick to remind them of who He is. And first of all, He says, this is who I am. I am the first and the last. And Jesus has has already 
described himself with this phrase back in chapter 1 and verse 17, where he tells John, I am the first and the last. Do not be afraid. And what Jesus is saying is, I am eternal. So that he takes a title that is given to Almighty God, that title of Alpha and Omega, of beginning and end, and he applies it to himself. It's again such a clear statement from Jesus. This is who I am. I'm God. And what a comfort it would have been to the the believers in Smyrna, the one that they were putting their faith in, the one that they were suffering for, He was and is eternal. He's the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it gave them confidence to keep on in their faith in Christ. But not only that, Jesus also reveals Himself as the one who died and came to life again, so that not only is Jesus eternal, He is also victorious. And again, what a great comfort it must have been for these believers going through this difficulty to hear these words. Jesus reminded them that His death had not been the end of the story, so that again, if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 18, He says, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Well, what a comfort for a church where people would soon die because of their faith in Christ. Uh, And yet, Jesus is saying, I'm the one who is in charge of death. I am the one who has authority over death itself. And not only that, Jesus also reminds them that He stands with these people, His people, in all that they're going through, so that the first two words of verse 9 are so important. Jesus says, I know. He identifies with them in their suffering. And you know that that sometimes when you're going through a difficult time, to have someone who comes alongside you who has experienced the same, and they can say, I know what it's like. I know what you're going through. I know the pain, the loss that you're feeling. Lots of bereaved people tell me about when someone stands alongside them who's been bereaved as well, the comfort that it brings. And Jesus, as our great high priest, is one who who knows, he understands what it is that you're going through in the difficulties of your life. He's just like you. He, he was in this world. He was subject to terrible problems and pain. He was tempted yet without sin. So that he says to his church here in verse 9, I know your, afflic- your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. And and that sounds contradictory. How can he say on the one hand, you are poor, but then also you are rich? Well, because Jesus, above anybody else, is able to see that bigger picture of eternity. And he knows that 
these followers were losing out in terms of this world, but that they were gaining in eternal terms. I wonder, does hearing this from Jesus today bring you comfort and help and hope? It should do, and it should do that for us as a church. We need to be sure of who we worship, who we follow, who we seek to serve, because there are many things in this world that would cause us to doubt, and there will be many obstacles along the way to serving Him and being a witness for Him. So, Jesus reminds them of who it is that they worship, and then He reminds them of who they are, and He does that by contrasting them with the synagogue in Smyrna. He says in verse 8, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And we need to understand what it is or who it is that Jesus is talking about here, because this is a verse that gets right to the heart of who God's people are. For centuries, as we can see in the Old Testament, they were God's covenant people called to Him through people like Abraham and Jacob, like Moses and David. But the coming of Christ fulfilled all of those promises in the Old Testament that said that this would be something that would be applied to all nations, that people from all nations would be brought to the Lord through His Son, Jesus Christ. And we think of how Jesus' death has done that, so that when Jesus died on the cross, remember one of the, of the things that happened, the, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. It was God's way of showing the way is open. Through Jesus, there is a way back to me. So, who was Jesus talking about here in verse 8? Well, He was talking about those who in name were Jews in that city, who attended the synagogue, who were persecuting the followers of Jesus in such a terrible way. And he makes an incredible declaration here. He says, they are not truly my people. That God's people are to be found in Christ. What that means today is that those who believe in Christ are really God's chosen people. In fact, Jesus goes as far to say that the, the people in the synagogue were in the synagogue of Satan. That sounds strong because they were persecuting the followers of Jesus. They were opposed to the work of Christ. But what do we make of this? This should never be a verse that would lead to any kind of anti-Semitism or any kind of ill-feeling to other people but it's a verse that helps us to understand our identity in Christ, who God's people are today. And it leads to that question, are you one of God's people? It's not by birth or by denomination or by background, but through Christ and Christ alone. And if you are, what an identity we have in Jesus. Because the final thing that Jesus reminds them of is what they will gain. 
And you know what it's like if you're ever away camping or some of you have done Duke of Edinburgh hikes in the recent past, or if you're away in circumstances that are far from home, you miss all of those comforts of home. You hanker after those things once again. And in the face of the terrible persecution that they were enduring, these people in Smyrna who loved Jesus needed to be reminded of what lay ahead, of what they would receive when they would be brought home. So Jesus is honest with them about the short-term cost, but he also tells them of the long-term gain that there is in following him. Look at verse 10. He says, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days, symbolic of a, a short time in the scheme of eternity. He says, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. And ultimately, it was the devil who lay behind all of the difficulties and the pain and the problems that this church was going through in Smyrna. But even facing death, they were victorious. And what a prize waited for them. It's appropriate that in this letter, Jesus talks about the crown because Smyrna was also a sports capital. It had a big stadium. It was where many of the races and the contests took place. And the winner received that laurel wreath or that crown placed on his or her head. Well, the prize that the, the Christians in this place, Smyrna, had to keep focused on was the gift of eternal life. Eternity spent in the presence of the Lord. And can you live life with this eternal perspective today so that you're able to face up to anything in this world in the knowledge that you will spend eternity with Christ? You know, for believers today, we don't tend to talk so much about what lies ahead, about eternity spent with the Lord. And maybe that's because relatively our life is quite easy here. But for the, the believers in Smyrna, in the face of all that they were facing up to, their eye was kept on the prize. They thought, what an amazing thing that lies ahead for us. This church in Smyrna is a real example for us to follow. There was nothing that Christ had condemned them for. Instead, he wanted to bring them encouragement. And today, I pray that we will come to Jesus. And in being God's people in Christ, we will know this encouragement as well. The encouragement of who it is that we worship. The one who is the same yesterday, today, forever. The encouragement of who we are as his people and what lies ahead for us. Amen. And as we think